You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Samantha Lai, Research Analyst at the Center for Technology Innovation. I am filling in as a guest host for today's episode. On Tech Tank, we have examined the various fallibilities of technology as we know it today. We've looked at issues on AI biases, content moderation, the digital divide, and more. Today, let's take a look at the intersection of tech and accessibility and examine how various tech policy issues affect people with disabilities. Joining me today are three guests. Lydia XZ Brown is a policy counsel for disability rights and algorithmic fairness for the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology and Director of Policy, Advocacy and External Affairs for the Autistic Women and Nonbinary Network. Alex Engler is a fellow in Governance Studies and is an adjunct professor and affiliated scholar at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Policy. Henry Claypool is a technology policy consultant for the American Association for People with Disabilities. He is also the national policy expert at the Brandeis University Heller School for Social Policy and Management's Community Living Policy Center. Thank you, everyone, for coming on to the Tech Tank podcast. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So to start off, Henry and Lydia, can you tell us more about how you first got involved in advocacy for people with disabilities? What is one story that has stuck with you most on how tech fails to be accessible and equitable? I acquired my disability in college. And so when I was there, I had the opportunity to benefit from programs like Medicaid, the heating assistance like YHEAP, the food programs like SNAP. And so through these benefits, I kind of learned about how to apply, how the policy worked, the operation of these programs and how to layer on top of that my experience as a disabled person. And that allowed me to build a foundation for the policy work that I'd go on to do in my career. And that includes public service in the Clinton administration, Obama administration, and a brief stint on the HHS transition team for the Biden administration. So it served me well, that early experience, relying on these programs. Lydia, what about you? I've been an advocate and a community organizer on disability rights and disability justice, which, by the way, are not the same thing, for about 15 plus years now. And like Henry, I came to the work because I am disabled. I am a multiply disabled person, and my roots originally came in the autistic community and neurodiversity movement, although my work is cross-disability and not focused on any particular disability experience or community. I've been, as mentioned in my introduction, a policy advocate and expert, as well as a legal advocate and a community organizer. My work has spanned a wide range of different areas and focuses within disability advocacy work. And currently, one of the areas that I focus my work on are algorithmic injustices and technology justice, as it is Uh, directly related to and connects to disability rights and disability justice work. 
That is super interesting and a perfect pivot to the first topic we'll be touching on today. As we all know, tech is a huge part of everyday life. We use it for work, we use it for school, healthcare, and everything. But at the same time, we see tech perpetuating and worsening existing issues, including, as Lydia just mentioned, AI biases. Alex, can you walk us through how AI biases happen on a technical level? Sure. So unfortunately, there are many ways that bias can enter into an algorithmic process. The data collection process can be inaccessible. Maybe it's not colorblind safe or requires significant dexterity, say moving a mouse very quickly. And that may discourage some people from going through the assessment and thus creating a data set that isn't fairly representative. But it's worse than that. Even if people are represented within a data set, they can have outcomes that are not necessarily fairly rooted in their own capacity. In hiring, which is an example I want to talk about today, if people with disabilities have been given less opportunity in the past, then their outcomes as an employee might not look as promising as other job candidates, and that will affect the algorithms that are built on that data. Another example, you can have people who simply look different or present or sound different in a models that are laying data or behave differently than other people. And this happens somewhat frequently where people with disabilities are a little out of the underlying distribution in ways that a model might expect. And this might mean that there simply isn't someone similar to match that person to, which ends up disadvantaging them. Basically, because the population of people with disabilities is comprised of relatively small sets of people who are somewhat different in how that their disabilities may manifest, they can be punished just because of that. Of course, there's also model-specific origins, how the algorithmic design choices can exacerbate or mitigate biases. And so all these combined, you actually have many different ways where structurally bias can enter into these processes. And in aggregate, your default assumption that they are probably biased against people with disabilities, unless you really actively, consciously trade very hard to reduce those, that should be your default takeaway. That's a problem that has to be rectified. Beyond hiring, in what other aspects of life do AI biases hurt people with disabilities? I'll give an example that's come up quite a lot in our work recently related to virtual and remote proctoring. As most of us know, over the last couple of years, with an explosion of online learning and the K-12 level and in higher education, more and more instructors and people who are giving assessments are giving their assessments electronically, and students are taking those assessments from home. And the rise of virtual and remote proctoring has included a huge boon to an industry that sells and markets automated proctoring tools, which are essentially software programs that use some combination of microphone and camera monitoring, screen recording, and algorithmic assessments of people's keyboard movements or mouse movements or their activity and behavior in their physical space to determine whether or not somebody's test-taking session should be flagged for potentially unauthorized behavior. In other words, using a software program to assess whether somebody is cheating or not. And we know from actual complaints from disabled people with a range of different disabilities that these software programs are already flagging disabled people as inherently suspicious for simply existing while having a disability. Someone whose disability means that they have a vocal tick or a motor tick, 
atypical eye contact, atypical body movements, who uses different input devices than a standard keyboard and mouse, who has a service dog present or a personal care attendant, or who has a mental health disability that affects their performance anxiety while they are taking the test and knowing that they are being surveilled, are all experiencing higher rates of being flagged for potential investigatory or even disciplinary action, up to and including invalidation of test scores, and, of course, placing an additional burden on such disabled test takers to have to prove affirmatively that they are not cheating, or to disclose a disability that they might not have felt comfortable disclosing originally, simply to hope that the software program will account for their disability and how it manifests in the test-taking room. Yeah, that's a really bad problem. And I also know that beyond your work on automated test proctoring software, we have also seen the rise of the use of bossware over the pandemic. Would you mind also telling us more about what kind of adverse effects that has? Bossware refers broadly to a set of software programs and tools that work to surveil individual employees on the job. And Bossware is now widely deployed in a range of industries across various types of work, including for workers who go to an office or a specific job site, as well as workers who are working from home or whose job takes them to a variety of locations like delivery workers. These programs exist ostensibly, number one, to optimize efficiency as determined by the company that is using them, or number two, to manage a particular worker's workflow and prevent a worker from being able to do activities they're not supposed to do on the job, but again, as defined by an employer. And what we've seen and what my colleague Matt Scherer's covered extensively in his research is that these programs incentivize workers to work longer, harder, and faster, sometimes to a dangerous pace of work that increases the likelihood of physical injury or of deleterious mental health effects, and while disincentivizing workers from taking breaks or even pausing for momentary periods of rest, whether that is trying to optimize a warehouse worker's path of stacking boxes and loading and unloading boxes to prevent them from being able to take a minute to take their breath, or whether that is preventing a worker who is doing white collar work from home from getting up to use the bathroom and leaving their workstation in their own house. Yeah, and all of those are really bad problems. I don't know, Henry, if you have anything else to add to what Alex and Lydia have said. I would back up a little bit to your initial question to Lydia about kind of the barriers generally and note that accessibility is a persistent challenge still. And people experience barriers trying to access online communication every day. And we still don't have a regulatory framework that allows for basic web accessibility to be achieved for a range of disabilities that need to interact with the content. So we have some foundational issues still to deal with. And then we're layering newer applications of tech on top of that. So this accessibility theme does run through most of the issues that we'll probably be discussing today. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
And so going back to the earlier point Alex made about his work on AI and hiring specifically. So Alex, I know you recently wrote a piece on how guidelines by the issued by the EEOC hope to make AI hiring more fair for people with disabilities. Would you mind telling us more about which problems specifically the EEOC was targeting in terms of AI hiring under the ADA? Sure. So the EEOC launched a new AI and algorithmic fairness initiative, of which this disability guidance is the first real tangible product. And it's aimed at two things. One, which is what Henry just mentioned, which is essentially that people with disabilities can be dissuaded or punished from an application process due to some sort of digital tool or digital assessment or even gamified application that is inaccessible to them, the variety of ways that that can happen. And then the second way is that the algorithmic hiring tool itself inappropriately punishes people with disabilities, which the EEOC refers to as screening out. For instance, the guide mentions how an audio analysis system is likely to discriminate against individuals with any sort of vocal tics, as Lydia was just mentioning just a second ago. So in what ways does the EEOC guidance hope to change things? So on the screening out, it's stronger than the pre-existing guidance and broadly seems to have been applauded by advocates in this space, though I'll certainly leave it to our other guests to weigh in. What the EEO said is that any disadvantaging effect of an algorithmic decision against a person with a disability is a violation of the American disability assuming the person can perform the job with legally required reasonable accommodation. So assuming they can do the job like in any other um, circumstance under the ADA. So what they're saying is that it's not enough to hire candidates with disabilities in the same proportion as people without disabilities. This is a different and stronger perspective than the EEOC has taken on race or religion, sex or national origin. And for those groups, it says that as long as you broadly select candidates from around the same rates from these groups, then it's okay. That's not discrimination. But the ADA, they're saying, is stronger than that, and any screening out is is illegal under the ADA. Secondly, the EOC wants employers to make it more clear that reasonable accommodations are available for algorithmic assessments and hiring processes, and that accommodation, those reasonable accommodations, can be an alternative means of testing or something that enables the, the mode of testing as, as it exists. And so that's broadly how they're getting at those two things. And then, of course, they're also encouraging a little bit of, they're sort of hinting at enforcement. They not so subtly encouraged what are called charges of discrimination, which is how the EEOC can start an investigation and possibly litigate against an employer. And they also suggested to employers various ways that they can hold vendors who sell a lot of these AI hiring systems to hold or to higher standards, especially around the process for, for people with disabilities or people who might need a reasonable accommodation. Those are all really important steps forward. But as we know, there are still many flaws and many shortcomings in terms of federal legislation, even being remotely able to catch up in terms of tech and accessibility. So Lydia, I'm curious to hear more about what you would have to say of what workers and students can do to proactively protect themselves against algorithmic biases and surveillance technologies that worsen discrimination. 
really the issue isn't about what individual workers and individual disabled people can do, right? Because at the end of the day, this is a question about unscrupulous employers and corporations profiting off of surveillance and discriminatory software. And individual people certainly can think through if they have the privilege of doing so, what kinds of devices they use, what types of apps they use, what kinds of information they provide. Can think about You can think about your individual privacy and security concerns, right? But not everyone has the ability to meaningfully opt out of the ubiquity of data collection and surveillance happening around us, all around us in every part of our lives. If you are relying upon getting a job to pay your bills, which is the vast majority of humans who aren't billionaires, then you may not have a choice but to submit your resume to dozens and dozens of automated resume screening software programs for a shot at being considered for a job. If you are reliant on publicly funded benefits, you may have no choice but to be subjected to an algorithmically informed benefits determinations process that might be discriminatory and might be collecting incredibly invasive amounts of information about you. If you are a person in public your image and biometric information about you might be captured by any number of means of surveillance tools that you may never know about. And you can't simply ask everyone, right, to try to manage our own privacy and security when we don't have in place right now strong enough regulatory and legislative protections that prohibit the most dangerous and invasive forms of surveillance and data collection and data profiteering. And when landlords and property management companies, when employers, when schools are incentivized to substitute a complex or nuanced human review involved process for automated algorithmic judgment instead, when they are incentivized to think of algorithms as the solution to inequities or bias, when in reality, the algorithms are still created, designed, deployed, and interpreted by people who exist within biased systems, who hold biased values, who are part of implementing biased policies, discriminatory practices, and so on. When companies, corporations, employers, universities, K-12 schools, whoever it is, that are using discriminatory or harmful algorithms are incentivized to do so, then at the end of the day, the measures that individual people might be able to take aren't going to be enough to curb those harms. We need to regulate. Definitely. I, I agree with all of that. Wow. Yeah, you are completely correct. Moving on to Henry, I know you've also previously written a report on Internet of Things when it comes to privacy concerns for people with disabilities. Can you tell us more about what the Internet of Things is and the unique privacy concerns that people with disabilities face there? I would just start with noting an obvious example, maybe for some, the smart homes and connected devices and the role they play in helping people live more independently. In a disability context, it's rather pronounced. So people are able to use different abilities to turn on and off their lights or communicate with environmental controls, adjust their window covering so that they have the proper amount of light in their home, et cetera, even locking the doors. So there's real potential in how connected devices are 
simplifying our lives. But again, in a disability context, it, it has this additional layer of really giving someone independence over the reliance on a human or some other substitute that might come and take care of these needs for them. The challenge, as Lydia laid out, is that people are sharing an immense amount of data about themselves, their needs, and their activities. And without really good regulatory environment, this data gets out and could be used in ways that really uh, would be problematic for people with disabilities. The population isn't a monolith. I think it's important to understand that, that the data sharing needs or preferences of different disabled people vary. And therefore, when we think about legislation and regulation to really allow for the best practices to come through and these benefits to be realized, we also have to be careful to attend to the privacy considerations that could result in really adverse consequences for people with disabilities. And I think Lydia did a fine job of laying those out. I would just note that the Energy and Commerce Committee marked up a bill that seemed to have bipartisan support, a rare occurrence these days. And that might be a pathway to creating an environment where there's better data stewardship by these private entities so that consumers don't have to engage in the type of complex decision-making that they're currently required to reap the benefits and at the same time manage the data in ways that limits how it might be used against them. But I think, again, Lydia made the point really well that that's an incredibly onerous burden to place on an individual, and they're up against large tech companies that can always probably stay one step ahead. So we're probably back into an environment where legislation is really necessary to protect from the harm so we get the benefits. Yeah, and I'm definitely excited to pick everyone's brains on the kind of legislation we need, but also to lay out kind of more problems that we have in terms of things that are completely out of individual control. Lydia, I know you've also written previously about policing and surveillance and how that also disproportionately hurts people with disabilities. Can you tell us more about that? We could honestly have a conversation for hours about this topic, but we don't have that kind of time, right? To dive into like all of the myriad ways in which disability shows up disproportionately and how disabled people are policed and surveilled and criminalized. But just picking it apart to talk through a little bit of how this happens, we know that disability is more prevalent in every marginalized and underrepresented and disenfranchised community for a range of reasons, many of which are deeply embedded into systems and structures, policies, and practices. For example, we know that people who are low income or poor are much more likely to experience disability than people who are higher income or economically stable. We know that communities of color experience higher rates of disability and that queer and trans people or the LGBTQ community, and we know that within the disability community, like many other marginalized communities, 
the people who already have the most privilege or visibility are usually the ones that we think of when we think about issues affecting a particular community. But in reality, those who are at the greatest risk from discriminatory and harmful practices are usually those who are multiply marginalized, who are at the margins of the margins. And so we know, for example, the youth who are most likely to be incarcerated are LGBTQ youth and black and brown youth and youth with disabilities. And youth who fall into more than one of those categories are the youth who are the most likely to become incarcerated and to be criminalized. We also know that people of color, especially black, brown, and native communities are the most likely to be criminalized as well. And that black, brown, and native people who are also disabled likewise experience higher rates of criminalization. So when we think about, for example, risk assessment tools that might be used in a bail determination process or predictive policing tools that are allocating police resources to target specific individual people or to target particular neighborhoods, that those people who were already deemed likely to be criminal, those who were already deemed likely to be suspicious, those who've already been interacting with police, surveilled, arrested or stopped are then going to be more likely to be further surveilled and policed, which reinforces and re-entrenches existing patterns of inequality and injustice, and then perpetuates and exacerbates them. Yeah, all of those are really bad problems. And we also see even worse problems coming out of emerging technologies, such as AR, VR, automated vehicles, speech recognition technology, and more. This is a question that's open to anyone who wants to take it. Could you tell us more about what concerns there are in terms of inclusivity and accessibility for these new technologies? I can just open with an example. You've mentioned speech recognition specifically, and I think the natural language processing that's involved. These models are built on speech-to-text files that really come predominantly from white males, probably like myself. And there are probably lower rates of incidence of cerebral palsy or other disabilities that may affect speech patterns. And the word prediction is likely to be far less for disabled people that have a speech pattern that varies from kind of the dominant profile that's used in building these models. So I think it's yet to be proven, but there's probably a good research project there. When we're thinking about the use of emerging technologies and how they can affect disabled people, many people stop at accessibility and inclusion at a very superficial level, right? They think, is this particular interface accessible to people who might use a particular input device? Is this program considering that people with disabilities might use it? But I believe we need to go beyond that superficial level of talking about accessibility and think about what access means holistically to echo the verbiage that Patty Byrne and others at Sins and Valid use when talking about the principles of disability justice. What does it actually mean for us to think about centering access in terms of the impact that a particular technology might have on disabled people's lives? For example, One concern that many people who use wheelchairs and many people of short stature have raised about automated vehicles are that those vehicles don't reliably know how to identify a person in a wheelchair or a little person who might be in a crosswalk and therefore put those people at a greater risk of being hit and injured in a car accident. 
But I'm also thinking about how can we make sure that pedestrians with disabilities will be safe, right? And that people with disabilities will continue to have access to accessible and safe transit options of all forms when autonomous vehicles become more widespread. Whether that disabled person is a pedestrian, that disabled person might be a user of the autonomous vehicle, or that disabled person might simply not have an autonomous vehicle be a financially affordable option for them, right? Most emerging technologies have a class problem where you have to be wealthy in order to be able to afford using them, where you already have to be part of the privileged class, and where the people who are thinking about deploying autonomous vehicles aren't considering the basic safety of the people who are living in the communities and neighborhoods where they might be deployed, or what it will do economically for people who are already struggling with paying their bills and affording rent when a neighborhood becomes overrun with certain types of technologies, or when employment or access to education becomes dependent upon an assumption that everybody has access to the same technologies. We already know now that disabled people, especially who are multiply marginalized, are less likely to even own a smartphone or have a reliable broadband connection. And yet technology innovators are having these conversations about ARVR and a lot of people I know and Henry know in our communities don't have access to more basic levels of technology that are now becoming increasingly mandatory to do things like, I don't know, get access to a vaccine or like apply for a job or pay for your rent or just like exist in public space. So we need to be thinking really critically about the implications of the technologies we're using, not just as to whether an interface or a platform is accessible for certain users, but whether the use of that technology in broader society is enabling access or whether it is perpetuating inequities. This is Alex. Can I have a small thought? Yeah, think, for sure. I think Lydia and Henry just mentioned some of the most important applications. I just want to add one. There is some clear research around specific type of AI called large language models that show them to associate disability with negative language and toxicity. A lot of these large language models are trained on big internet data sets, and those data sets in the internet themselves are quite toxic and often have toxic language used in association with people with disabilities. And so that is what the language models learn. A research paper found that Homelessness, gun violence, and drug addiction are significantly overrepresented in comments with disability mentions. And these models are really starting to matter quite a bit. They're being deployed for applications in search. They're used in content recommendation, in addition to many of the more direct services that we just mentioned, like educational access and hiring. It's the future use of these models and, and the ability for either of these problems to be much improved or finding different approaches that can be more inclusive, I think is, is also important. And we're still in the early stages, but the problems have certainly been well identified and consistently identified, including in some of the leading models. I think the gaming environment where disability is often not a term associated with some positive interaction and language is used to denigrate people with disabilities, those, the rates of use in these environments in these rooms are rather high and probably building more of the kind of on the data set that Alex mentioned to really reinforce the fact that the disability experience is going to be stigmatized unless we have better content moderation on some of these platforms that 
would really discourage the use of denigrating terms and, and the broader discrimination of people with disabilities. Without steps like that, it seems that the data sources are just going to continue to reinforce some of the societal norms that Lydia has done a great job of laying before us about disabled people and and people of color and particularly those that are multiply marginalized. I can go add a little bit more to some of the advanced technology comments that Lydia had laid out. The American Association of People with Disabilities, there is a project uh, that I work on called We Will Ride, and we engage with the large companies that are planning to deploy autonomous vehicle service. We have built our relationship to date on the issues of accessibility. Hopefully, by building some of these relationships, the dialogue has a way of encouraging and shaping the performance of these private sector entities so that there is a foundation and relationship that can be built. And then when we come to more of these difficult questions, in the absence of regulation, hopefully we'll be able to raise them. Lydia mentioned specifically object recognition and classification as an example of different types of pedestrians and how the sensor array may look for for people, if we're able to raise those in the context of these working relationships, perhaps we can really have a much more refined categorization of these types of people and get the safe outcomes that we're looking for from this advanced technology. Yeah, definitely. And I know we have spoken repeatedly throughout this podcast about just a lack of regulation and oversight in terms of making sure that existing technology is equitable. So going to you first, Alex, can you tell us more about existing guidances there are for AI biases in general and what we could add to existing frameworks to better protect marginalized groups, including people of color, people with disabilities, so on and so forth? Sure. What's called the Bill of Rights for an Automated Society This was an initiative first announced last year by now Office of Science and Technology Policy Director Alondra Nelson, though it it seems to be a bit delayed. And what I'm hoping it will call for is some more extensive, sectorally specific guidance from regulators who get into their specific sector and dive into algorithmic harms, especially around bias and discrimination, and decide what they are capable of enforcing what they're able to enforce, building some enforcement capacity, and then reporting back on what they feel like they're unable to do in order to maybe guide some future uh, legislation or regulatory changes. There were some executive orders under the late Trump administration that also would push the agencies in this direction. Unfortunately, they have almost entirely been ignored. Almost every agency has largely decided to to not really follow this Trump era guidance. And so all eyes maybe are turning to this Bill of Rights for an Automated Society now under the Biden administration. So some hopes there. Just one example of something I'd be interested to see. Um, there 
I'd love to see more from the Department of Health and Human Services. There was an impactful 2019 study that demonstrated healthcare provisioning algorithms resulted in significantly reduced care for Black patients. And that was a good and valuable study, but it opened a lot more questions than it answered in terms of how might other groups be being marginalized in terms of healthcare prediction and preventative care based on healthcare provisioning algorithms, which are now very, very common in hospitals. And I should give some credit to the Department of Human Services. It's actually the only agency to really have followed that Trump era guidance on, on documenting its regulatory oversight over algorithmic harms, which includes something called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which they could feasibly use. But I'd still love to see more. And I'm really hopeful that the Bill of Rights for an Automated Society moves us in that direction. Yeah, fingers crossed. And moving on to Henry and Lydia, I know, Henry, you've mentioned having more collaboration between private companies and disability rights advocates. Lydia, you've mentioned the importance of privacy legislation. Building on that, what else needs to be done? Tech advocates really need to spend a lot of time explicitly building relationships with and listening to disabled people. And there are more tech advocates who are doing that people who are experts in the development and the deployment of technology, in designing and implementing technology policy. And the work that we're doing between CBT and AAPD is a great example of that. But that work needs to be replicated and expanded upon. And when people ask me, right, like, what do we do next? I always come back to that answer because it cannot be underscored enough. That if you were thinking about what can we do to make sure that our policy aims and objectives reflect disabled people's needs and are responsive to disabled people, you have to then consider, are there disabled people who are involved in that process? Are you actually considering disabled people as not just topics for use cases, but are you considering disabled people as your colleagues in design, as your colleagues in policy implementation, as your colleagues in advocacy? Because if you don't see us as your colleagues, then you are not going to be designing for us and you are not going to be accounting for discrimination and other harms that arise from technological injustice. Yeah, definitely. Henry, do you have anything to add to that? I would just note one kind of glaring example of the lack of accessibility or even the lack of enforcement. And the federal government is required under the Rehabilitation Act under Section 508 to maintain and operate accessible IT systems. And it year after year fails to do so. So maybe there needs to be better enforcement of that by perhaps withholding portions of budgets from federal agencies until they comply with existing requirements. If without a strong precedent like that, it's hard to see how the private sector is going to be held accountable. We've got to do what we've got on the books today. So I stop there. Yeah, definitely. Those are all really, really interesting points. And I really appreciate all the insight you have given us for today's podcast. So this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bites. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I am Samantha Lai, research analyst at the Center for Technology Innovation and guest host of this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank. 
a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.